I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The first guest of the evening is truly a poet. He's an artist. He is a friend and an inspiration to anyone who I think who has ever played the guitar or tried to write poetry. Would you please welcome Gordon Lightfoot. Hello, and welcome to Carefree Highway Revisited, the show that celebrates Gordon Lightfoot's music song by song, a proud member of the That's Not Canon podcast network. I'm your host, Mike Messner, and with me today is a fellow Lightfoot fan from Keller, Texas, Glenn Nelson. Glenn, thank you so much for joining me today. Michael, I'm very happy to be with you. I've been following your Carefree Highway. Fantastic work on that. You know that we both love Gordon Lightfoot, so anytime I get a chance to talk about one of my idols, a music icon, I'm for it. All right. Well, that's what we're here for, and we'll talk specifically about what we're going to do in this episode in a second or two. But wanted to hear a little bit more about your fandom with Lightfoot's music. How did you get into Gordon's music originally? Well, it's kind of an interesting story because I was a freshman in college at the University of Oklahoma and close to campus, they had a record store. They did have records back then. Vinyls have finally come back now. But anyway, I walk into what's called the hub and the guy running the hub was great. He trained all of his staff that whatever the hot records were that they were enjoying this week, they each got to pick their favorites. So the guy that was running the store at that time, he picked If You Could Read My Mind, which had been retitled from Lightfoot. And so I'm listening to a whole side of that and it got to If You Could Read My Mind. And I'm going, I was looking at probably Led Zeppelin or something on a rack and I just turned around and looked at him and said, what is that? And so you know, I'm sure a lot of uh, your fans and any fans of Lightfoot that go, when did I first hear if you could read my mind and what was the impact? And it was a big deal. So I had to go retro. See, 1970, I got it figured out. And now I've got to go back and figure out what happened between 65 and 70. So that's where it started, though. Can you tell me what turned you on about Lightfoot's music? I mean, is it everything? Is it the total package? Was it the lyrics that drew you in? Was it the instrumentation? Was it his guitar work? What element of Lightfoot's music really drew you into wanting to listen more of it? What a great question for so many artists and certainly for Lightfoot. I'm a little different in the sense of the lyrics come last. I took piano and guitar, but everything about melody syncopation, crescendo, decrescendo, even Mozart, all the way to pop, any Beatles songs that sounded like they were symphonic worthy, those things hit my brain first. Then if you get a bonus like Lightfoot, who's a poet, 
then all of a sudden it's really coming together. So you can imagine if you could read my mind talking about castles and all of that, and he's written this melody that's beyond anything that I'd heard in about 10 years. I'm just going, okay, I'm in on this. So it's really, I think, Lightfoot as a songwriter. It's not just that we love Lightfoot's ability to sing or put on a show. What did he contribute to music? And he certainly is there among the elite songwriters. No doubt about it. And it's interesting that you found the music so captivating because a lot of the other people that I've talked to have really been drawn in by his mastery of the lyrics and the literary element of it, which is, again, as you said, second to none. And when you have someone who is as eloquent as Bob Dylan saying that every time I hear a Lightfoot song, I wish it would last forever, really, that's a pretty good authority on literary it, stuff. So there's it, certainly no question about that. What about seeing performances? How much did you see of Lightfoot? Was there a particular yeah. concert that stood out to you? Yeah, what about yeah. your experience of seeing uh, him live? Only a couple of times, sadly. He did not come to Oklahoma City that much where I live, but I saw two concerts in the same venue, Oklahoma City's Civic Center Music Hall, Lightfoot, who I saw in 1984, and what a perfect time to see him. I mean, the set list, Michael, was just incredible. 24 songs, I mean, all the way from 66 to 83, pulling stuff from Salute and Shadows, which was recent, from Dream Street Rose, from Endless Wire, plus all the classic stuff. It was an incredible concert. That venue holds around 3,000 people. So I wouldn't say it's small, kind of medium. But if you could see the acoustics in that place, if, I don't know what those speakers are. They're like clips or some high-level acoustics going on there. And you know how Lightfoot is. He's such a perfectionist and has been over the years. And he had the band tuned up, guitars tuned up. His voice was immaculate that night. It was just a great concert. So it's in my top three concerts of all time. The only other two that are even in there is the Moody Blues, and then the other one is Elton John. So those three concerts are on the pedestal. Fantastic. And it sounds like that was just the perfect venue. Not too big, not too small. So yeah. large enough to bring in an appreciative cohort, but small enough still to be intimate. And then I think that's probably the best of both worlds. One more question before we get into the topic today. Did you ever have a chance to meet Lightfoot? I did not. And I tried <laughs> a couple <laughs> of times at hoping that he might sign autographs. But that venue in Oklahoma City was not really amenable to that and so forth. But I do have, even though I never got to meet Lightfoot, it was an interesting thing. I got to meet Jimmy Webb three times. I'm always throwing things at him about what about Art Garfunkel or what songwriters are important and all of that. So I was pitching Lightfoot to him. And of course, he acknowledged the greatness there. And so Jimmy Webb's heavily associated with the Songwriters Hall of Fame, of which Lightfoot was a proud member, is a proud member. But no, I didn't get to meet him. I would have loved to. Yeah, I didn't have a chance either. But as I said, after Lightfoot passed away, I didn't know him, but he knew me. Yeah, 
probably says it all. Well, today, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at covers that other artists have done of Gordon Lightfoot songs. And there have been many. And Glenn, you and I both came today with our top five plus one honorable mention. So right. what we're going to be doing is we're going to be talking about each of those six and we'll be going back and forth talking about your honorable mention, my honorable mention and back and forth like that, why we like them. And we'll have a little bit of the backstory on them where we were able to get that. So this is not a focus on a single song. This is on covers that people have done. Now, I don't mind telling you, Glenn, it was an enormous effort to try to just consolidate six songs that I thought were particularly good because there have been just so many covers of his songs by so many different people, most of which are readily available for the listening. So I know this was a tough one for you and it was a tough one for me, but yeah. let's get into it. So your honorable mention was what? Nancy Griffith, and she had help from Irish Dement doing 10 Degrees and Getting Colder. And I don't know really the backstory, but I can figure it out. Because Nancy Griffith, that's another one that we've lost, an Austin native. So I'm from Texas. She's from Texas. It's all there, you know, right from the start. Just an angelic voice. Even the chieftains in Ireland wanted her to come over there and sing with them. So, so she's a big deal and still is. And so she put together a, an album called Other Voices, Other Rooms. And I mean, it's the who's who of storytelling, Dylan, John Prine, Towns Van Zandt, on and on that are on this album. So any of our listeners, that if you have never listened to Other Voices, Other Rooms, it's an essential. And so the Lightfoot song that she picked was an interesting one from 71, you know, way back. It shows Nancy knew the history of everything because she recorded this in 93. But I love her version, and it's a typical make-it-her-own kind of thing, true to the style of Lightfoot, but definitely bluegrass in nature, bluegrass harmonies with Irish Dement, and it just flat works. And you know what I love about a song like this is that when I start to look at a cover of Lightfoot, I'm always taken back a little bit if it's a guy. If it's got the female touch, the voice, the feminine approach, then that gives us a whole new dimension there. And I'm not going to slight, you know, a lot of the covers that the guys have done on Lightfoot songs, that they're great. I've got some of them in my group. But these two ladies, you know, you can tell when you listen to a song, are they into it? They're way into it. Anyway, that's my honorable mention from Other Voices, Other Rooms. Yeah, the thing I thought of when it Nancy Griffith, and I haven't listened to her all that much, but I've loved what I've heard. She did a great cover of Boots of Spanish Leather, yeah. 30th anniversary for Bob Dylan back in 92. And so she does have an affinity for making songs her own. She did in that album that she uh, recorded, 10 Degrees, that went to 54 on the pop chart. And Lightfoot's version went to 38. Neither one of them released that song as a single. And it's been covered by a number of other people. The ones that stand out to me, George Hamilton IV, who's done a lot of things. 
John McLaughlin, who's been on the show a couple of times. Tony Rice, we'll talk about him a little bit, and seven or eight other people. So it's certainly one that has its place in the canon for Lightfoot. And, you know, I agree with you that Nancy did a great job. My honorable mention is Oh So Sweet, and it was by the Lightfeet Band, which is a group out of Australia. And Gary Luck has been on the show. So I had a chance to talk with him and he was very gracious. He sent me a couple of CDs that the group had done. Awesome. (laughs) And the reason I like it is it is a retrospective song, but there is a country beat to it that the band has. And Lightfoot was basically doing that song by himself on the solo album, which was his last album before he passed away. The harmonies are very tight and it's retrospective, but it doesn't get maudlin. You know, this is not an overly sad song. It's not like, well, that was fine. Now I'm going to jump off a cliff, you know, and just end the impression that there's more to do, more living to do, to quote a phrase rather than just, okay, well, that's my signature and that's the end of the story. The band also recorded songs, the Lightfeet band also recorded songs that represented other parts of his career. Cotton Jenny, Sundown, Beautiful, Ribbon of Darkness, and there may be others. So it was really the filet, if you will. Well, yeah, amazing selections that they obviously are into it. There aren't any other covers of that song that I can find, at least official covers. Of course, the album only came out three years ago, so we may see it yet. So that's something probably look forward to. I'm really glad, by the way, that you picked that one because most people that know me know that I'm kind of a nut on dates and years and releases and stuff like that, but I like closure. So to get something that was released in 2020, probably the master was recorded maybe in 02 or whatever, but he magically finds those songs. So that's an important song. That's my favorite from Solo. So I'm really glad you picked that. So now we're into the countdown. So what's your number five, Glenn? My number five, Shadows, Allison Krauss and Union Station. And this was not released as a record per se. I'm an Allison Krauss huge fan. And she put out a DVD called 100 Miles or More. And it was from the tracking room sessions, actually in a Nashville studio. So to say that it's live is not exactly, I mean, they might as well have been laying down this track and it is so polished. And her band, I mean, she had Tony Rice with her and Union Station, Dan Tyminski on mandolin. It's kind of like, man, these are some serious musicians. And so once again, I'm picking Shadows because You've got that female touch. You've got the voice of an angel, as far as I'm concerned, with Alison Krauss. And to show you how much I think of her voice, she's the only one that I would have accepted her actually doing a cover of Brenda Lee's All Alone Am I, which she did on Windy City. Normally, I would have said, that's sacred ground. No one should do that. That's how much I think of that particular song. So... It was a natural for me to find this. I was going to buy the DVD and then Shadows, I get to Shadows and I thought, man, 
they loaded it up and you'll notice that it's about a minute longer than any shadows version that's out there by Lightfoot. Four minutes as opposed to three minutes. But what they did, Michael, is they filled it with bluegrass perfection and the seamless way that Alison Krauss brings in to the lyrics and her voice again through it. I don't know really how they did it because it's a lot longer project that they made out of it. But anybody that has not listened to that, you can go to YouTube and check it out. I think it will blow you away how good it is. Well, either that or go buy the DVD, get it on demand or something like that. Yeah. To have Tony Rice, it's like Michael Jordan showing up at your house and saying, hey, you want to go play some (laughs) one-on-one? Or it's like Steve Jobs showing up at your house and saying, hey, do you have a computer? I'd like to see if I can play with it a little bit. It's really the king and queen, you know, are coming to call visiting royalty. Again, it wasn't one that was released by either artist as a single. We know that Lightfoot's Shadows album went to 87 on the pop charts, and it's been recorded by four or five other acts, but this is the only one, the only cover version that I've heard is Alison Krauss's. I was prepared not to like it because I don't see Shadows as really lending itself to bluegrass, but I was pleasantly surprised really did an amazing job on it. You know, to your point, I'm always concerned anybody that covers Lightfoot, I'm going to go in with a critical eye because I revere everything that that guy did. But in this case, you've got an artist that's already been at the crossroads between folk and bluegrass. And that's why Emmylou Harris gets her to sing with her on the Everly Brothers tribute. You know, you've got the right person to do it in Alison Krauss, and she surrounds herself with great musicians. And the backstory on that, I know we're going to talk about that a little bit, but it was interesting. Tony Rice is so proud in the interview on the DVD to say, hey, I pointed to my album singing covers of Gordon Lightfoot, and I got Alison into this mode of looking at what could cross over and be done as part of this project. So we'll give Tony some credit there for sure. Oh, totally. Yeah. We'll be right back to our conversation with Glenn Nelson about our top five favorite Lightfoot covers. But first, a word from a podcast partner or two. Sanjay! Sanjay, look! Yes, Zach? Wait, what's that thing you're holding up? It's a time travel device. We can use it to go back to the past and watch movies. But we already do that on our podcast, Oldie But a Goodie. No, on previous episodes, we were pretending to time travel. Now we can do it for real. Cool, so we can really go back to like the 80s or the 90s? No, 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 Sanjay, you're thinking too little. I mean, we could go really far back. Like we travel back over a hundred years into the past. Oh, but Zach, that's so far in the past. Those movies would be old. Yeah, but, well, the show is called Oldie But A Goodie, so we should we should probably do old movies. Oh, that's a good point. That's right, folks. This year on Oldie But A Goodie, we're going back further than ever before. Wait, who are you talking to? We're starting in 1920s, doing one movie from that year, and then moving up to 1921, and we're continuing that until the year 1969. <laughs> Nice. Join our time-traveling journey through cinema by subscribing now to Oldie But A Goodie out wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, that's Not Kind of Productions podcast. 
Victorian Periodical Parade. Hey, this is our new podcast. We're going to make this podcast. It's going to be Victorian. It's going to be new. It's going to be us reading and then breaking it down in the same episode. Be excited. Listen to these horror stories that are actually going to be similar to your life today. This is the transition episode where we go from YouTube, Facebook into the podcast. This is what we're planning on doing. We have content already. Go ahead and watch, listen on YouTube and Facebook. Um, But now it's pretty much just audio only. So we're going to bring it to you in an audio format. And uh, here it is. We're going to narrate a book and then we're going to break it down into the things that you have learned about the Victorian era and then the the crossover between the Victorian era everyday life to the 21st century everyday life, right? Victorian Periodical Parade. Well, my number five was The Last Time I Saw Her Face by Glenn Campbell. And it is a touch more earthy than Gordon's version, but it still has the same kind of gravitas that there's still a huge amount of romanticism that it really is coming from the heart. And the instrumentation between the two recordings is very similar. Now, I don't think that Glenn was trying to rip off Gordon, but I do think that imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. And so I think that he did a really nice job of that. We do know that he had just recorded Dream Baby, How Long Must I Dream by uh, Roy Orbison. And he had a hit with that. And he did have a flair for romantic poetry. And if you look at all the things that Glenn Campbell did, he was a very good interpreter of other people's songs. You mentioned Jimmy Webb, Wichita Lineman by itself, just as a testimony to how good Glenn was at that. The name of the record was the last time I saw her, or maybe it was the last time I saw her face. I can't remember, but it went to number six on the country charts and 87 on the pop charts. When Lightfoot put it out on, did she mention my name? It went to 21 in Canada. Lightfoot didn't release it as a single, but Glenn did. And the single went to 21 on the hot country singles, 31 on the hot 100, and then 12 on the easy listening charts. So it says just as much about the content of the song as it does about Glenn's ability to make it his own. And both of them have now passed on, but I think they were peas in a pod. I think it's interesting. You and I worked on our little project leading up to this, and I didn't know really till the end almost, which five you were going to pick, which was exciting for me. I was anxious to see that. So I can tell you this is in my top 10, and there's lots of reasons for it. For one thing, it's back in 1971 when Glenn Campbell, by then, I'm really getting into him. By the time I get to Phoenix has come out, Jimmy Webb's writing Where's the Playground Susie for him. There's so much going on. And then I did not know until we started looking at this. I went back and looked. He did also record Wherefore and Why back in about 67 and did a nice job with that. But you picked the one and he did. He did emulate. The one thing I'd say about Lightfoot's version, I think the reason it maybe was not a single is it's a long song. Yeah. And it's so polished. Some of the songs maybe on the Lightfoot 67 or 68 albums 
are just great acoustic folk songs. But this was kind of a forerunner of the type of production that you saw on Gord's Gold. You know, you go back to listen to this song on Gord's version, it's a masterpiece. I mean, it's amazing. I'm glad that we both have the same kind of mindset on that. Okay, moving on to number four. Glenn, what do you got for us? I've got Early Morning Rain by Peter, Paul, and Mary. And I would be remiss. I'm going to talk a a lot about this, but I want to also mention that I thought that Ian and Sylvia really did a nice job and used it as a title track for their album. Hmm. I definitely, between those two, no slight to Ian and Sylvia because they were great with it. And it was important to Lightfoot's career that they put it out there as a title track. But Peter, Paul, and Mary, this goes back to where we started talking about how I got into Lightfoot. So we're talking about, I'm a freshman in college. I'm at the fraternity house. I've got this cassette of Peter, Paul, and Mary, 10 years together. And so amongst Grand Front Railroad, Led Zeppelin, and all of that, there's this cassette floating around the frat house. Some of them had never even listened to Peter, Paul, and Mary. So on that greatest hits collection, you've got For Loving Me and Early Morning Rain. So I can remember my frat brother's reaction at the time. I I mean, I knew about it. They're going, oh my goodness, (laughs) the three-part harmony. And I look back, Peter, Paul, and Mary, they did their stuff. They all played guitar and they all sang in perfect harmony. They could sing the lead, they could sing harmony, they could sing anything. They could sing the phone book. And so there was no doubt that when you get a song like Lightfoot Can Write like that, and then you get them to do it, your career has just been launched. Oh, goodness. So much to think about and what you've just said. I mean, the first thing that I thought was you don't really think of Peter, Paul, and Mary in a frat house, those two don't necessarily go there. I mean, there is a stereotype, and I admit that I'm falling into it, but it's probably got some sense of reality that when you think of fraternity houses, you're probably not thinking of folk music. You're probably thinking of hard time rock and roll party kind of atmosphere. Yeah, exactly. And the fact that you were exposing these guys to that kind of music, I think, speaks volumes. And the fact that they received it is great. We do know, as you said, that Ian and Sylvia, who have their own legacy that we don't have time to talk about today, did hear Lightfoot playing in Steele's Tavern in Toronto when they passed on Early Morning Rain and For Loving Me to Peter, Paul, and Mary, who were at that point, 65. I mean, they'd been around for a little while, but they had made huge hits out of both of those songs. And they had been interested in the folk movement since probably the mid-50s when the Weavers came back after being blacklisted. But this really did light a fire under them. The album See What Tomorrow Brings was number 11 on the pop charts. They did release Early Morning Rain as a single, and that went to 91 on the U.S. chart, 13 on Adult Contemporary, 34 in Australia, 39 in Canada. Lightfoot himself did not release it as a single, of course, and it's been covered by so many people, we would take another episode just to list them all. But, um, (laughs) you know, just an amazing number of people. Good choice, Glenn. Thank you. We should mention Elvis the King, you know, even picks it up 
in his Nashville uh, album when he went country, you know, in 72. So like you said, it's a who's who that have done Early Morning Rain. What an incredible song. The documentary, if you could read my mind, gives a few snippets of the people who have done it. Oh, you know, one other thing on this, Lightfoot, you know, he did the Windy City Chicago concert soundstage, 79. He introduces the song. He's he's so humble and cool the way he, he laid it out. It says, my first real good song. And Peter, Paul, and Mary did it. He was so thrilled to even hear that on the radio. So that that's a great career builder thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, second to none, really. <laughs> well, my number four is The Circle is Small by Jimmy Buffett. And the reason I like this, and I've always loved the song, the version on Endless Wire, the yeah. one that he had done earlier in his career, and this one. The reason I liked this one is that it was acoustic-based, so those major seventh chords that went into what Gordon wrote really resonate in a way that when you put the electric guitars and the synthesizers and the keyboards, they get washed out just a little bit. So it's more pure, and that's why I enjoyed it. We do know that Jimmy Buffett recorded that and many other songs in the late 60s when he was still struggling. And I think a lot of people were saying, oh, you're too country, you're too Nashville, you're too this, you're too that. And the tapes were found when the studio where he had been recording those was sold to a new owner. And the owner came in and said, okay, well, we need to clean things out. You know, I'm going to sort of take possession of this place. And in this closet, they found these tapes. Isn't that amazing? Thank God they did. And it became the beginnings of Jimmy Buffett's album, Buried Treasure, Volume 1. Now, that came out fairly recently and at a time when having a hit single is not today what it was, you know, several years ago. So he didn't release that as a single. The record did get to number 85 on the Billboard 200. This is Buffett's version of it. And we know that when Lightfoot released it as a single uh, on Endless Wire, it went to number one in Canadian adult contemporary, nine on the Canadian country charts, 33 on the U.S. pop charts, number three on U.S. adult contemporary, and 92 on the U.S. country charts. So he was still very much in his stride when this came out. But the acoustic version of it, I think, is a lot more intimate and a lot more accessible. Again, you know, we, we have a similar mindset, and I'm, I'm a Buffett fan. And Buffett, by the way, is a huge Gordon Lightfoot fan because he talks about songwriting, which is kind of our focus today with Lightfoot. What Buffett said was he wanted, if, a little bit like Dylan, he said to himself, how can I write a song as good as Gordon Lightfoot writes a song? How can I tell the story as good as Gordon tells it? And so he gives his big song, Come Monday from 74, which is a beautiful ballad for any of the that have not listened to Come Monday. But he gives Gordon the credit for the inspiration for how he wrote Come Monday. And I think that it's one of those ballads that I would have loved to have heard Gordon Lightfoot cover Buffett on Come Monday. That would have been amazing. There's this linkage between, you know, we talked about a fraternity or we get the sorority in there with Nancy and Iris, but, you know, it's kind of of a, there is a camaraderie that's going on there. But Buffett 
was a big Lightfoot fan. So great choice there. Yeah. It's also been covered by four, five, or six other acts, but I think this is the one cover version that I really like more than all of them. Okay. We're up to number three. Glenn, what do you got? Number three, Ribbon of Darkness, which all the Lightfoot folks know that it's on his first album released in 66 and still my favorite version. But I picked this because this opened the door again for Lightfoot's career into the world of Nashville. Marty Robbins was huge all the way back to White Sport Code, all the way to the 50s, El Paso, Streets of Laredo, even El Paso City in 76. But just that whole Nashville segment of the music population. And what's interesting is that Marty obviously loves this song. I mean, if he did a live concert, this song's there. Uh, some good buddies of mine, again, from actually post-college days, they used to be kind of groupies with Marty Robbins. So they would follow that. And we would talk about all the songs that he did. And it was rare that Marty would ever record a song that he didn't do or didn't have some involvement with. So for him at this point in 65 to pick Lightfoot's song, like we've talked, this is the ultimate compliment. Now, he did it a little differently. It's, it's faster. It's upbeat. If you think about the lyrics to Ribbon of Darkness, it's a depressing song. But you wouldn't know it. The Nashville crowd, boy, they're just clapping and having a big old time, you know. But it works. That just shows you how great Lightfoot is on songwriting. You can take a song, you can do it different ways, and it's still going to work. You know, the thing that I noticed about what you said is that Lightfoot meets Nashville or the whole country genre. And I think even more than Early Morning Rain, this is something that really brought Lightfoot to people's attention. Even though when Marty did this, Lightfoot hadn't even released an album yet. He'd done Ribbon of Darkness, which was a number one hit, country hit, and it stayed on the charts for seven months or something very, very close to it. It was not on an album. I think that's another aspect. Yeah, of this that, is, this that's is right. not extracted from a Marty Robbins album. This was it more. Finally, less, showed up on Greatest Hits Volume Three, which was away. probably well after he'd passed away. You yeah, know exactly. I mean, God bless him. Now, Gordon did release it as a single. Of course, it didn't go anywhere, and neither did the album. The album didn't chart anywhere at all. But I think in addition to the feel of the song, I mean, you think of Ribbon of Darkness, I mean, it's a depressing title, although the the melody and the arrangement to it is not particularly depressing. No, not at all. Yeah. But Robbins was very into direct lyrics, and he was very into sort of, I don't want to say macho, but certainly a certain yeah. amount of, you know, direct, tough masculinity where you don't really, yeah. he was not a poet. He was not a romantic And Lightfoot certainly was, but this particular song was not overly poetic, not overly Let me eject here. I've heard this said about him. It's called Cowboy Flair. He had a flair for cowboy, kind of that Western, not so much of an ego, but confidence. And you hear that in the song. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it, confidence. And of course, it's also been covered by bajillions of other people. Connie Smith, remarkably enough, took it all the way to 
number one in Canada in the late 60s. So I think it says, again, a lot about the lasting power of Gordon Lightfoot. So, Michael, you'll be proud of me. I did late night homework and I finally got to the Connie Smith version last night. I'd never heard it. It's really well done. And it gives, again, that female dimension. And Crystal Dale, that was her first song she ever did on Grand Ole Opry. So she goes out live, a very young Crystal Gale, 19 years younger than her sister, Loretta Lynn. She's out there on the Grand Ole Opry doing this song and belts it out, does a great job. And then in 2019, Crystal Gale puts it out. It's the lead single from her comeback album. So no kidding. Lightfoot impact, lightfoot magic all over the place. (laughs) Yeah, and probably a little bit of lightfoot money too. I mean, let's face it. We'll be right back to our conversation with Glenn Nelson about our top five favorite Lightfoot covers. But first, a word from a podcast partner or two. Hey, I just wanted to take a second to tell you about my latest podcast discovery. Fire Breathing Kittens is an actual play one-shot podcast that plays various tabletop role-playing games with a season-long plot. Because there's a beginning and an end to each week's story, you can start at any episode. Yeah, you won't miss a thing. Every week has a different combination of four from the same rotating cast of people. Join fire-breathing kittens as they solve detective mysteries, attempt comedic banter, and enjoy friendship. That's fire-breathing kittens podcast. Check it out. In 1942, when the world needed a hero to fight the forces of evil... A woman had the courage to step forward. Her name was Helen Meeker. Her adventures took her across the United States and behind the lines of both the European and Pacific fronts. President Franklin Roosevelt trusted her judgment. Adolf Hitler put a price on her head. And in the face of overwhelming odds, she battled through everything that was thrown at her, dodged death countless times, and challenged the most diabolical figures in history. The star of more than 20 novels, Helen Meeker proved her grit and determination time and time again. And now the Long Highway players bring the book series to life on the airways. These exciting dramas will place you in the middle of the action, immerse you in riveting drama, plunge you into unimagined intrigue and confound you with dark mysteries while giving you the opportunity to live adventures in a time when the fate of the world hung in the balance. Enjoy the exploits of Helen Meeker and follow author Ace Collins's In the President's Service series on That's Not Canon Podcast Network. Well, my number three is Second Cup of Coffee by John McLaughlin, who's been on the show a couple, three times. And the reason I like it is that John's arrangement doesn't try to reinvent the wheel, but it does have just a touch of Celtic in it. And John had the advantage of working with digital equipment, which makes the sound really, really clear. And so I don't know that I've heard a better acoustic guitar sound. Um, in my life on a, a record, on a on a CD, on a song. Uh, John is a total devotee of Gordon Lightfoot. He's done a number of 50 years since albums, 50 years since Don Quixote, 50 years since Endless yeah. Wire, and giving more contemporary covers of each of the songs that were on the original albums. And 
It's not something where he's rearranging it dramatically. He's not changing the key very much, if he is at all. It's just so well done. And again, John had and has the advantage of more sophisticated sound engineering that Gordon simply did not have in the 60s and 70s. This is one that was new to me, and I really enjoyed it. And I listened to a lot of the other Gord songs that he's covered. And uh, I love the simplicity of how he approaches it, but it is so well produced. It's a very pleasant listening experience. And certainly anything from Don Quixote. <laughs> what an album. And you know what? I'm embarrassed to say that I underrated that album at the time. I was coming off of the glow still, if, if you could read my mind, that album and all of that. and. It's more in my recent years of going back to say, wow, why did I not play this album cover to cover? It is great. It's right up there with his best album. Okay, well, now moving up to number two, Glenn, take over. What's your number two song? All right, so now we're going with, I'll just say two words, the rock god, or three words, the rock god. <laughs> you brought up the introduction to my frat brothers of, Peter, Paul, and Mary to them at the time that they're listening to Led Zeppelin and Iron Butterfly. When Eric Clapton, you know, you think of him, I think of him from Cream, White Room, Sunshine of Your Love, the psychedelic era, and all of that. Clapton was like a chameleon. He evolved so much. And by the time he got to 1992, he's doing unplugged uh, version of Layla. This is interesting because you go back the forerunner to that is 1977, and it's a song that I think you're going to cover this. Didn't make the cut onto the original Slowhand album, but thank goodness in 2012, they give us the deluxe version, and nobody's thrown away these masters, and he does a really, really nice job of paying really homage to Lightfoot's talent because Clapton had a way when he would cover some other songs of really changing it. But I really felt like he was true, very true to the spirit of what Lightfoot intended. I would not even go in the ballpark of saying anybody can touch Lightfoot's Looking at the Rain. That's in my top 10 songs of Lightfoot. It's one of those things that I put it in the basket of significant. Eric Clapton doing your song and later sets him up to do Change the World from phenomenon, or it's in the way that you use it in 86. Look at all the different things, and certainly Tears in Heaven on Unplug. So Lightfoot and Clapton come together, the folk master, the rock master together. I don't know that I could add a whole lot to that. The only detail I'd add is you said, thank God they didn't lose the masters. Slow hand, it already had Wonderful Tonight, which is some people think, okay, that song is not very exciting. It doesn't, it goes on too long, blah, 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 blah. But it was a huge hit and it was a ballad. And yeah. I think Eric probably felt, well, we've already got a ballad in here once. There's no reason to put in another. And although Eric did a very tasty job on it, it didn't really allow him to explore a whole lot of guitar chops. It's not a song that lends itself to an extended jam, to an extended solo. Although, you know, I would have loved yeah. to have heard him play it on Unplugged. So that's probably why it wasn't included on the original record. But 
as you say, thank God they kept the masters and they re-released it. Lightfoot's version, again, we're back to Don Quixote, but we know how that album did. I don't have any numbers on how the deluxe version of Slow Hand did. The original people can look up, but it didn't have looking at the rain on it, so we won't preoccupy ourselves with that right now. And the song's also been covered by Joel Dennis, John McLaughlin, one more time, and well, Hank Williams Jr. Let me say, too, Hank Williams Jr., again, late night homework, listening to Hank Williams Jr. version, he really does a nice job. So here you've got the rock god and then Hank Williams Jr. with his heritage. What a dichotomy there on both ends of the spectrum, both doing a great Lightfoot song, a great ballad. So really cool. What a compliment to Gordon Lightfoot. Totally. Yes. Well, my number two is All the Lovely Ladies by Barbara J. And she is a Southern California singer-songwriter who's done a lot of different covers of Lightfoot stuff and a lot of her own too. And I'll be having her on the show pretty soon. And the reason I liked it is, as you said, it's a woman's perspective on a song that is about women. So I thought that was kind of interesting. I also like the fact that her voice was just a great fit for the key. I don't think it was modulated very much, but the key that Gordon wrote it in. And we do know that When Barbara released it in 2014, it was a self-release. If she had a record contract at that point, I don't know about it. But it did take off pretty well, and it did win Best Song in its Genre from Academia Music Awards in 2015, and it had some pretty good coverage along streaming radio services, and it was the definitive version. It was the first version of that song that I had heard. Now, we know Lightfoot didn't release it as a single, It did come from Cold on the Shoulder, and we know that album went to number three in Canada, number 44 in Australia, and number 10 in the U.S. So again, still a good vehicle for what Lightfoot was trying to say at that particular point in his career. It's another one that I had not heard, and so you're turning me on to some really good artists that not just because they covered Lightfoot, I mean, she's a really excellent singer, and I think She's got a lot to offer. What a unique thing to get this perspective of all the lovely ladies, but from the feminine touch of that. I love that aspect of it, but I think it was another really good choice. Okay, well, we're into our number ones. And so, Glenn, take it away, and then I've got one after that. A song for a winter's night. Do we have two hours of tape here? I don't don't know where (laughs) we are. You know, it's interesting. You go back to some of the groups that, There's a Gordon Lightfoot gold group that's just one of the greatest groups ever. But there's a lot of discussion about certain songs that you just can't live without. This is one of them. What I loved about Sarah McLaughlin's version, not only is she from Canada, but this was added to a movie that normally you'd say, should you cover a movie? Okay, what about Miracle on 34th Street? Yeah, which was a remake in and of itself. A a remake in itself. And Richard Attenborough plays the lead role. And I'll say the first movie was the best, absolutely. But this Mm -hmm. was well done. And you need help when you do something like that. And so they had a great soundtrack. And the producer, it was her regular producer that got involved, that was already co-writing with Sarah McLaughlin was the producer on the soundtrack on this. So it all links in. And 
you could say, well, was it overproduced? But I'm a big fan of new age, of Inya and anybody that's like Inya, Clanid, you know, the Celtic feel and all of that. And that's almost what you get here. There's a lot of double layer harmonies of Sarah singing with herself. Now, Sarah can do it either way. She can sit down at the piano alive and just singer-songwriter deluxe and just deliver anything you want at the high level. But this was really produced in a way, when I was done with it, I was going, wow, if this was in Amadeus, they say, this is the best song yet written, like an opera or something. I mean, it is really out there as far as the holiday spirit, the Christmas feel to it, her voice, her style. It's a minute longer than uh, Lightfoot's version. And I really think they used Porter Lightfoot Gold version to kind of emulate. And I think that's what they should have done because that version has a certain mystique to it. And it is cinematic if you think about it. And Sarah did just a spellbinding job on it. Now, it is a winter song. It's not necessarily a Christmas song, but right, it certainly right. fits very well in what they were trying to do in the movie. And the movie, yes, the original was probably better, but it's an evocative movie and it's a, a seasonal movie. Her rendition was also on her compilation album that came out in 1996, which is Rarities, B-Sides and other stuff. And she put it on a Christmas album called Winter Song in 2006. And that record went to number one in Canada and number seven in the U.S. on the strength of all the songs, not that one, because she didn't release Song for a Winter's Night as a single. Neither did Gordon. He had that on The Way I Feel. And then you mentioned Gord's Gold, which to me really is the definitive version. And predictably, it also has been covered by way too many people. And you know, we <laughs> yeah. don't have time to get into all of that. I do want to throw one out to you just to in the kind of the heartland of America. There's a YouTube version from the Wichita State University Choir in a holiday concert. And it is like an anthem. And it just shows you how Gordon Lightfoot's songs, he has written something that can transcend to whatever you want to make it. I mean, ethereal kind of stuff. And the harmony of that choir also works. So Mozart worthy. Indeed, or Bach worthy. Yeah, yeah yes, talk about yes. Chorales, yeah. yes. Well, my number one is For Lovin' Me by We Five. Now, I have to preface this a little bit by saying, yes, it's a song that Gordon grew to hate. Yes, it is a misogynist song. And yes, it was recorded by a band whose bass player was as close a friend in my life as I've ever had, Pete Fullerton. He was on season one, and he's also since passed away. But the reason I liked this is that it's a sassy version of a sassy song. And once again, it's being sung by a woman, by Debbie Bergen, who was the second generation sort of singer for We Five after Bev Bivens. There's a great dobro part to the song. It was the first version of that song that I had heard, and it is very much a kind of really kind of right. smug, rub-your-face-in-it version that, although Gordon's version was great, it didn't have quite the same amount of attitude. And again, it's been covered by way too many people, most notably Peter, Paul, and Mary, and they did release it as a single. 
it was on the original Lightfoot album. We know that didn't chart. We know he didn't release it as a single. The sad thing about this album was that um, it got great reviews. It was on the Catch the Wind album that We Five recorded in 1970. And it got great reviews. And then the owner of the Vault label died. And maybe he hadn't made a will. Maybe his lawyer wasn't involved with this. But in any case, after the owner died, they had no idea what was going to happen to the company. And in some cases, the records were returned to the company saying, look, we don't want to be stuck with this inventory. And up until recently, it's been very hard to find, certainly on vinyl and even on CD. It was, again, a great album that had a lot of misfortune because the band had really worked hard to get the sound that they were looking for. They had Mike Stewart as their producer and then disaster struck. But in any case, it's a very screw you feel (laughs) to it. And that's why I liked it, because I thought it fit the lyrics very well. I got a big kick out of it. And I had not heard that version. I'm very familiar with the Wii Five and all the mid-60s sounds. Bo Brummels and all of that San Francisco sound and the We Five, You Were On My Mind, which came from Sylvia Fricker. And I love their version of it, of that song too. But I think it's a great choice for a song that is well-written. And I know Gord came to buys it and that kind of thing, but he might be a little hard on himself. I totally understand it. I have the same concern but my goodness, back in the day, you've got Dion doing The Wanderer, and then you've got Bob Dylan writing similar songs. And even some of Lightfoot's other songs have tones of some of these things. But the song, let's face it, it's a great song. And by the way, Peter, Paul, and Mary, one critic said, wow, that's a softer version. It's kind of almost given with regret of how it's sung with Peter, Paul, and Mary. So a different approach. Maybe if that's all that had been done, Lightfoot wouldn't have felt so bad about it. Yeah, maybe not. I mean, he certainly didn't object to the paychecks, you know, that came involved, the, the royalty checks. But it's not a song that you want to be remembered for, certainly. So, Glenn, there was one song that you and I agreed that just no cover could ever uh, touch in the Lightfoot canon, no matter how good it was, no matter how successful it was. And so what was that song? Well, right where we started our conversation, back in that Hub record store, if you could read my mind, I knew when I heard that, I said, nobody better dare cover that. It is kind of the heart and soul of the Lightfoot genius. And so I know Lightfoot has been said to, that he liked Streisand's version and he liked the fact, just like Clapton doing a song, Streisand doing a song, that's a big deal. And Olivia Newton-John, you know, we lost her too, but she does a very nice job. In fact, I just bought that album, If Not For You, is the 50th anniversary album just came out. If you've never heard that version, it's pretty good. But you see where I'm going I'm going for the female approach. I don't want some other guy covering this song. I'm not going to give it much due. The only cover version I ever heard that might have been true to the spirit of it, might have been in that vein, would be Don Williams. But uh, it's Lightfoot. It is the essence of Lightfoot. That's probably a good way to sum it up. I've heard versions of it that I liked, but there is nothing that can compare to Gordon's original version of it. I think it's one of those few that I'm just thinking, 
okay, nobody else can touch this. I mean, if I were in a position to make that edict, I would say, no, nobody else gets to touch if you can read my mind. Okay, it's too perfect. We're going to leave it alone. Okay, well, Glenn, as we're sort of finishing up here, this is the question that I've been asking people in the last few months for reasons that will become very obvious. Where were you and what were you doing when you found out that Gordon had passed away? Well, I was doing my typical thing. I do a time machine thing that kind of celebrates music between 1950 and 1999. And I was working on country classics. I saw the information, came across the internet. I was devastated, didn't expect it. So then from then on, everything was different. And even what I was working on, all of a sudden, I'm going for Ribbon of Darkness. I'm going for whatever links this in. But it was just one of those things. I was on the internet. I was listening to music. And it was not news that we expected. But, you know, Gordon Lightfoot, he lived a wonderful life. He enriched all of us. I think all of us have tried to pay tribute to our hero. It's hard to go on without him, but he would want us to. So that's how I look at it. Well said. All right. Well, Glenn Nelson, this has been a huge pleasure for me to be able to talk with someone who has a grasp of the music scene that Lightfoot was a part of and to be able to make references that we each understand in a meaningful way. So I wanted to thank you for taking the time with me today and hope to have you on the show again real soon. Absolutely. It was my pleasure and my honor. Thanks a lot, Michael. And thanks for listening, everybody. If you like this well enough to listen to the whole thing, tell somebody about it. Carefree Highway Revisited is on Apple, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your listening matter. Our website is www.lightfootpodcast.com. I'd like to make a special request for you to visit my Patreon page. I love this show so much, and I want to keep it going. And you're in a position to help. Please head over to www.patreon.com slash carefreehighwayrevisited. A dollar or two a month is all I ask. You can reach me, Mike Messner, at teachermike72 at gmail.com. Well, our next episode will feature my guest, Barbara J., whom I talked about a little while ago. She's from Southern California, and she and I will be discussing all the lovely ladies from the Cold on the Shoulder album that Gordon put out in 1975. Until then, for Glenn Nelson, this is Mike Messner reminding you, run for the roses, but don't forget to stop and smell. We'll see you next time. Bye.